Lord Jesus, we welcome you here. We welcome your presence. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to fill us. Fill us this morning <clears throat> with an awareness of who you are. Help us to know you better. Help us to understand the hope we have been called to and the power we have access to right now. I pray, Lord, that we would be a, a good soil, that we would receive the word you have for us and that it would be planted in us, that we could produce a harvest of a hundredfold. Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters that desperately need you, that need to be reminded of the grace you extend to those that are in Christ. I pray for my brothers and sisters that are walking in literally physical pain that need healing. I pray for them this morning. And for those that are living a life without hope, that are anxious and depressed and need um, your, your spirit to bless them with living hope in your name. We pray all these things. All God's people said, <clears throat> amen. Before you begin, um, you're going to need a Bible. We're going to Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> a couple of questions I have for us this morning. What kind of God do you worship? I want you to think about this for a moment. Before we jump in and start, I start tainting your mind with Scripture or blessing you with Scripture, I want you to think about what kind of God you worship. <clears throat> what kind of God do you serve? If you follow a God, what is he like or she like? Do you pray to this God? And if so, <clears throat> excuse me, how do you pray? Do you have to beg? Do you bargain? Do you plead? Do you know where you stand with this God? When you pray, if you pray, do you pray for the things that you need? Do you um, pray f for the things that you want? Do you only pray when things are in difficulty, when seasons are, are more of trials and tribulations and, and temptation? Uh, I want you to think about the type of God that you worship, the type of God that you serve. Do you rest in assurance of where you stand with him or her? Because Paul is going to teach us this morning how to pray in light of who God is and in view of where we stand with this God. So, I want to recap. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, we're, we're doing a series through the book of Ephesians. We're going verse by verse because um, we want to study this because Paul wrote this, Apostle Paul wrote this around 60 AD to the churches in Asia Minor around Ephesus, which would be modern day Turkey. And he wrote this as a letter for new converts to know what it means to follow Jesus. This book is for new Christians. It's a letter for new Christians on how to live on how to live in view of who God is and what Jesus has done in view of the Holy Spirit, how to uh, enter into the workplace, how we live in view of what God's done uh, in our marriages, with our children as parents, uh, with spiritual warfare, how we operate as a church, how we worship, um, how we serve on mission. This book talks about the cosmic plan that God has for all things. So this book has everything to do with us 2,000 years later. So we're looking at this book as a way to learn how to become who we already are in Jesus and how to live today in Long Beach, Southern California, wherever you live, in view of your relationship with God. Are you with me? Um, 
the book is broken up just structurally so you guys can catch up if you haven't been with us the last two weeks into two different parts. The first section, chapters one through three, is what theologians call the indicative. It's Paul saying, this is what God has done for you. And then the second section, part two, is chapters four through six, and it's called the imperative. It's what we do in view of what God has done for us. Okay, so two parts, what God's done and what we do in view of this. This is the gospel. And and if you're new to Christianity, um, it is unlike any other world religion or spirituality you can possibly imagine. Every other religion says you have to do something to get to the place of nirvana, of heaven, of paradise. But in Christianity, it's very clear God's done everything he can to get us to a place where all we have to do is receive him. And in view of what he's done, then our life becomes a response to what he's done and who we are already are. This is the good news of Ephesians. Um, I talked about two weeks ago, just three verses. Um, the verse one says this, uh, the second part says, to God's holy people in Ephesus. And I talked about how um, Paul addresses the Ephesian church. These are Christians. These are new converts. These are people that were living pagan lifestyles, worshiping other gods in sexual relationships with multiple people, polygamists. And he says to them when they're newly converted, you are a saint, you are holy, you are blameless, you are God's beloved. Nothing can separate you from God's love that the way God sees you is wrapped in himself in Christ. And so the good news we talked about in Ephesians is that if you, if you come to Christ, you no longer are defined by sin. In fact, there's no biblical justification if you are in Christ to call yourself a sinner. Amen. That's how the book begins. And then the book continues in what Bill talked about last week, um, verses 3 through 14. Now, verses 3 through 14 has 202 Greek words, and it's one, one long run-on sentence. Now, we break it up in, we, uh, in our English because we can't grasp the significance that this, mess, this one um, kind of uh, sentence is to Paul. And, and what, what Bill talked about is this is Paul's introduction. He's teaching the Ephesians how to be. And so he begins with a greeting and a a song of worship. This is doxology. This is a theology through the form of worship. And what Bill talked about is this is God's cosmic plan. This is uh, where we stand in, in, um, with, with God. It's that he says in that, that those 14 verses, or excuse me, those 11 verses, that we are um, in Christ, we are adopted, we are holy, we are blameless, we are included and sealed, we are chosen, we have the Holy Spirit, and we are God's possession. It is absolutely epic. It talks about God's cosmic plan of summing up the entire cosmos through Christ. And it is this epic, magnificent worship. I can't use big enough language to describe what Paul's doing. And he begins the, the, the whole book with saying, this is who God, God is. This is who you are in view of God. And then he finishes that and goes right into verse 15 where he begins to intercede for the Ephesian churches. So you could say chapter one begins with welcoming the saints and saying, this is how you are to worship. Or we'll go this way. This is how you are to worship. And this is how you learn how to pray. Are you with me? By way of introduction. Obviously, I'm passionate because this is some, some epic prayer. And uh, I, my hope today is that you can hear what Paul's praying for and that you can be invited into Paul's prayer for Ephesus. He's teaching us how to pray as followers of Jesus. I'm extra dry today, so I'll be drinking more water. And I got applause for that. Thank you. Um, okay, let's read this together and we'll jump in. Verse 15 of chapter 1, for this reason, 
ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. For far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Another long, epic, theologically dense sentence. 169 Greek words. And Paul begins by saying, I'm praying for you guys. And in verse uh, verse 17, he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, God, Jesus, the glorious Father, may give you the Spirit. We have a Trinitarian sentence. Okay, we need to grasp this. Our God is Trinitarian. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He'll give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know him better. The, the, the prayer begins with Paul asking uh, for God to fill the people of God with his Holy Spirit so that we may know God better. That's what he's asking. I want you to grab, there's three parts to his prayer, that we may know God, we may know the hope, and we may know the power. We're going to talk about why this is so important. The first thing that he asks is that God would give us himself to know him better. Okay, now, now check this out. The verses before, if you were here, was this epic illustration of who God is. Are you with me? That God has this cosmic plan. He's massive. He's ruling over all the rulers and authorities and he, he's, he's defeated death. That same magnificent God comes to us, gives us his spirit so that we may know him better. I think Paul's prayer here is so important. And here's why. Understanding who God is directly impacts the way you live. Understanding who God is directly impacts the way you live and the way you see the world works and how you might pray in view of this God. So, for example, if you don't believe that there is a creator God, you will do most likely two things. You will worship creation or you will worship yourself. If you, don't, if you don't believe that there is an ultimate God, a deity who has made the heavens and the earth, you will end up worshiping creation or things that have power over creation, like sun, moon, stars, plants, animals, systems. Do you know what I'm talking about? The unforce, unseen forces of spiritual things in the world. Or you'll simply worship yourself. Do you think we have a problem with this today? Okay, I want to illustrate this point because I think this is, so, this is just, fin- this is brilliant, the way Paul goes. So the beginning of our understanding in faith is to know who God is because that will shape how we see the world, how we sh- see ourselves, and how we operate in this world with partnering in prayer. So I, I just want to point out something. Go to, uh, this, is, this is just a great story that illustrates the point I want to make. Go to uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. We'll start in verse 22. 1 Kings 18. So, We understand 
um, that, that even present culture, present reality, we, we either worship ourselves, especially in Western society. Brothers and sisters, I was at South Coast Plaza this week. People worship themselves. You want to know where real principalities and powers lie? It's, it's at South Coast Plaza. I, I, I'm not joking. We'll talk about this. We're going to talk about demons today. We're going to talk about spiritual forces. So if there are kids in the room, I don't want to scare you before Halloween. But we'll talk about the real scary stuff, not the stuff on TV. But so um, let's, let's talk about this for a moment. Primitive cultures. There, and, and as we talk about Ephesians, we have to get our mindset into this context. And we might think because we're a sophisticated culture that we're above this, but we're really not. But primitive cultures have always operated with the assumption that there are powers and forces in the world that are greater than this, themselves. So when you rely on agricultural goods, when you rely on the plant to produce a fruit so you can eat, when the rain doesn't come and the sun doesn't shine, that plant doesn't exist. Would you agree? Or when you rely on, if you're a hunter and gatherer, if you rely on, on the, the kill of the animal, of the beast, so that you can survive uh, and eat the, 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 the animal, um, you, you might worship the hunter and the activity of hunting the wild beast. Um, I'm just talking about ancient cultures, the Indians. We can get our minds to Aztecs. I mean, hunters and gatherers. We, we know that um, like if you had a problem with childbearing, you would worship whoever had the power to help get childbearing to happen. Do you understand? This is, this is ancient primitive cultures, okay? So uh, what started off as worshiping plants, worshiping the, the stars and the moons, um, ancient cultures gave names to those powers. They would call the sun a name. They would worship the sun if they needed the sun. They would worship the rain if they, they would do rain dances. We know about this in Indian uh, societies, in, in uh, feathers, not dots. And I think, uh, excuse me, but like that, that Native American, excuse me. And um, so, I don't know where I was going with that. Um, so yeah, I lost you with that one. Okay, yeah, but going back. So, there, so that's what happens in primitive culture. You, you worship these gods that have powers over structures and, and plants, and, and you get the point. So um, this was the pagan reality. This was the reality in Ephesus. This was the reality in ancient Near East cultures. They would worship um, animals. They would worship uh, the, the, the sea. They would worship all different sorts of gods. It's like, it's like an iPhone. There's an app for everything. And in pagan cultures, there was a god for everything. It's still true for today in, in India with Hindu religions. There's a god for everything. And so in that type of culture, what you can't see, you name and create power and you worship. Okay? Let me give you a demonstration. And when you worship the gods that, you, that, you, uh, that have power over the things that you produce or that you want to produce, like uh, vegetation and, and, and rain, um, if it doesn't rain, you offer a sacrifice, right? You bring, you bring an offering so that you can appease the gods so that they will bring the rain. And it, it, let's say that last year it did rain and you produced a great harvest and you were very successful. Well, next year you would give more offering. You would offer more sacrifice and worship to that God so that you could have more of whatever you needed. It's kind of like the vending machine. But, but if it didn't come and something was wrong, the gods were angry and you gave more and more and more stuff and offering and worship and time and sacrifice. Are you with me? Sorry, it took me a while to explain that. That just came to me before. I don't know why I'm, I'm, I'm all over the place on that one. But uh, let's, let's read about Elijah. So here's Elijah. 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings 18. Uh, what we have is Elijah is the last prophet of, of the real God of Israel. Yahweh. 
And there are prophets. Israel is worshiping other gods, particularly Baal. And there's 450 prophets of Baal and one prophet. Hey, Wayne, I'm going to ask you, Wayne, Wayne, hey, Wayne, I'm going to need you to keep down or you're going to have to leave. Okay, bud? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, what we have, excuse me, guys. Um, what we have is uh, Elijah is the last prophet of, of Yahweh, and there's 450 prophets, and Elijah's fed up with Israel worshiping all the other gods. And so he says, here's the deal. I'm just going to go through this real quick of, for the sake of time. Here's the deal. Uh, let's, let's figure out whose God is really God. So he calls the prophets of Baal, goes to the mountain, and he says, whoever's God burns this altar of, uh, with fire is the real God. Okay, so 450 prophets of Baal build this altar, put this bowl on it, and they begin to pray to their, 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 um, their God. And this is what happens in verse 27 of 18, uh, or verse 25. So Elijah said to the prophets, choose one of the bowls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on, on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bowl given to them that they prepared. Then they called on the name of Baal, from morning till noon, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no answer. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they made. At noon, Elijah begins to taunt them and said, Shout louder, he said. Surely he is God. Perhaps he's in deep thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder, slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until the blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. So you have the prophets of Baal marching around the altar for hours and hours and hours and hours, calling out to the point where they get so desperate that they begin to cut themselves. Because when you don't have anything else to give, all you have to give is yourself. When you don't know where the gods stand or where you stand with God, you give him more and more and more and more to the point of blood. Are you with me? And Elijah simply goes quietly to God, builds an altar, and he says this. Puts water on the altar three times. And he says, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell on the sacrifice and licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. In primitive cultures, you don't know where you stand with God, but we have been given a name. We have been given a relationship. We have been given the opportunity to know exactly where we stand with God. In a world where you don't know where you stand, you'll simply offer more and more and more and more. With God, we don't have to offer more and more and more and more. The offering's been offered for us on our behalf so that we stand perfectly content with God in Christ. The reason Paul begins this prayer is that when you don't know where you stand with God, you won't necessarily know how to live in this world. If there is no God, and if he is distant, you don't allow that God into your relationships. You don't allow that God to lead your life. All you begin to do is worship or live out of your feelings, out of pleasure, out of greed, out of gluttony, out of the whim of the day. Paul's saying there's an epic God who has this, the history, the, uh, the story of history. He's living out of history, and you're invited into that. Are you with me? That's his first prayer. So if you believe in karma then things just happen to you. 
And things are a product of random chance. And when stuff hits the fan, you simply live anxious knowing that you did something bad past, in the past, in your past life. But Paul begins by worshiping this great God, and he says we know exactly where we stand, that we are sta- saints, we are adopted, we are beloved, we are chosen and predestined, we are blameless in him, and he is working all things back to reconcile to, to him, all things back to himself. And the same God welcomes us and gives us his spirit to know him better. In other words, Paul's first invitation is simply that we could be invited into a relationship with this amazing God. That the first prayer for the Ephesians church and for us is to know God, to know him relationally. And that question, what kind of God do you worship, is really important. Is he angry at you? Is he mad? Is he paying attention to you? What type of God did Jesus reveal? He's a God that goes after the lost sheep. He's a God that goes after um, the least. He brings the least likely folks into it. He says, you have a part in my kingdom. He's a God who, who loves, who forgives, who sacrifices himself for us. Do you worship that God? And the only way you can tell what type of God you worship is how you live your life. So examine your life. What type of God do you worship? So, that's where it begins. That's, that's, go back to Ephesians. We're going to look at the second prayer. So the first prayer is that we know God relationally and that God would give us his Holy Spirit to know him. That he would give us wisdom, discernment, and revelation. That God himself will reveal himself to us in us. It's beautiful and it's complex. Second prayer is, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. This is a Jewish way of saying the heart was the center of the, uh, the spiritual, emotional, the mental um, source of a human being's soul. So what Paul's praying is that the place where you make decisions, the place that you operate out of, I pray that that would be enlightened or revealed so that uh, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. So first, that you may know God. And second, that you may know the hope that you have in the future. Do you think this is profound? I want to talk about hope for a second. 40 million Americans are diagnosed with anxiety disorders. Okay? 40 million Americans today live with a sense of worry, nervousness, and unease. Um, and, uh, typically, it's about something that there's an uncertain outcome. And they, they, 40 million Americans are diagnosed with this disorder. And it's absolutely normal. And many of us are on medication for this. And that's totally fine. I'm not against medication. But it has become acceptable and more and more frequently around the world to be diagnosed with anxiety. A fear of uncertainty about the future. Whether that be uh, social gatherings, meeting people, a fear of, there's tons of phobias that we can talk that are linked to anxiety. But 40 million Americans, I would say a huge percentage of us, live in a constant state of anxiety, uncertain about what's to come, an uneasiness, a sense of uneasiness in uh, situations. 58 million Americans are diagnosed with depression. 58 million are diagnosed with depression. Um, This is a condition in which a person feels discouraged, sad, unmotivated, disinterested in life, and hopeless. 
58 million Americans feel depressed and are hopeless today. I've struggled with anxiety and depression. I bet if we raised our hands, there would be a majority of us that have in season felt an extreme amount of anxiety and extreme amount of depression. We've walked in seasons of hopelessness and uncertainty about outcomes and uneasiness about outcomes. And there's plenty of reasons for that. We can talk about societies. We can talk about being raised, our loved ones passing away, nations, world changes, affairs, societal structures transitioning. Life is in constant transition. And it seems like there is this epidemic of busyness in our first 21st century culture that produces depressed, anxious individuals. So that's, I just want to highlight that and we'll connect that in a second. In the first century Ephesian worldview, they believed in Ephesus that there were powers out there, spiritual realities that were opposing life. And in the same way that we talk about you had to appease God, that was their paradigm. It's called warfare worldview. They believed that there was a spiritual warfare going on and they had to appease the gods. And it was so significant in Ephesus that it was, it was the center for religious worship in Asia Minor. And uh, there was a, a document found, a scroll found called the Ephesians or a papyrus of some sort that ha- in the first century was world renowned or all over Asia Minor because it had in it lists of, of formulas potions, incantations, rituals, um, practices, um, performances, dances, and all these different aspects that you could use to access divine power to influence the gods and allow those gods to be manifested in your life. This is in the first century. So as Paul writes, we need to get this because Paul's writing knowing the context he's writing to. So in, in this scroll, people believe that if you invoked a name, and I use that intentionally, if you invoke the specific name of a God, that that God would help you. So if you needed a God to fix your knee, in this scroll, you would have the God of the knee to help you with your knee problems. If you wanted to get pregnant, you'd pray to Artemis, and she would help you get pregnant because 50% of all those that, were, um, uh, that had a child died in childbirth. And so there was constant sacrifices being given to the God of fertility and reproduction, Artemis. But there was a God for absolutely everything in the scroll. And so you would pay a witch doctor or a priest who had access to the scroll to tell you the ingredients to the potion that you needed in order to, uh, to get what you needed out of your, out of your life. If, if it was a better business, you would pray to that God. If it was success in marriage, it was that. If it was um, harvest, you would pray to that God. This is the paradigm. So imagine for a moment you were in that worldview. You were living in that society where you worshiped all of these gods. And then you accepted Jesus. And the fear became for Paul, or the, the, the tendency is just to attach Jesus to all the other gods. This happens all the time in, uh, in pantheist cultures, in, in Hindu religions. I've been to India three times. And every time we do conversions, we have to tell people to renounce the false gods that they were worshiping. Because this isn't just any other god. This is the one true god. Okay? Now, this is the society that, that they're living in where literally people are dying all the time. Doctors are seeing women die constantly. People are literally um, are, are giving all of the resources to worship these other gods. And so their worldview was that they had to do that for them. And when Paul prays uh, in, in a world that says fate is determined by the gods, he says, I pray that you know where you're going. 
I pray that you have hope for the future, that you know where history's going, and you're wrapped up in the God that's leading history. So anxiety and depression because worldview isn't working out the way you want it, you can't control the outcomes of your events, he prays hope into you. He prays hope into your life of depression, hope into your life of anxiety, and hope into the communities that are depressed. He's teaching us to pray first that we know God, but that we bring living hope into our life. So that we could say to those with anxiety and depression today that you can live with hope. Yes, some need medication. Yes, it's, it's clinical. Um, there, there are some chemicals in the brain. Sometimes that prayer doesn't fix. I get it. But we are taught to pray hope into reality. You with me? Amen. Worried about where your marriage is headed. God prays hope into you. Paul prays hope into that circumstance. The God who's summing up all things, all things your marriage all things includes the, the the teenager that's acting up all things includes the job that has become the biggest stressor and the idol in your life when you go to pray all you can think about is guidance for the income i pray that you would know the hope to which you have been called and the glorious inheritance of the of the lord's people that's what we're praying if paul was here he wouldn't be saying darren i'm, I'm praying for you to get the building that would be my prayer I'm praying that the community that you follow would know God and know the hope to which they have been called to. Oh, beautiful prayer. Are you with me? So first, that we know God. Second, that we know hope. And let's get into the fun stuff. Um, I love this. This is the third prayer. That you would know the incomparably, this is verse 19, his incomparably great power for us who believe. The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, in every name that is invoked. Not only in this present age, but in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Paul first prays for us to know God, second, that we would know hope, and third, that we may know the power. And this is the same power that raised Christ from the dead, seated him next to the Father, um, and put him above every spiritually opposing force out there. Paul's, I want you to look at this. He writes, rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked. In this age and the age to come. These are not just um, physical governments. He's not talking about governments. He's talking about spiritual realities. He's categorizing, he could have used a lot of other language. Um, he could have used uh, unclean spirits, demons, the, the Satan, Satan, the devil. Um, he could have, he's going to use powers and principalities at the end of, this chap, uh, end of the book. But he uses rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked. He's literally talking about everything that is opposing God's way of life. There are spiritual realities that oppose God's way of life. Hear this, please. The church needs to talk about this. We live in a Western society that says um, what you see is what you get. That we've reasoned and scientifically uh, uh, acknowledged things in a way that we reject the spiritual realities in the world. There are evil forces against God's way of life on earth today affecting the people of God. There are demons. They are real. There are spiritual realities outside of demons that are real. There are spiritual realities that are opposing God's way of life. And Paul wants us to know 
that we have access to the greatest power of all. And that's God who's raised Christ from the dead, seated him at the right hand of the Father, and put all of those things under his feet. Okay. (laughs) So, I want to talk about this for a moment. Paul's saying to this context that... um, you don't have to wear bracelets or know the formulas, know the formulas or know the specific in names that will invoke powers. You don't need incantations. You have access to God and everything he wants to give to you in this present moment of life. Some of you don't live a life with Jesus or live with, for what Jesus lives for and you don't face opposition. When you live for Jesus and live for what he lived for, you will face opposition in your life. Some of you avoid it like the plague. Some of you are experiencing it <laughs> like it's, it's just Monday. I want to make a couple of points. Number one, demons and spiritual forces opposing God's way of life and God's kingdom are real and we need to be aware of it. This shapes how we pray. You can read in Daniel chapter 10 about Daniel praying for 21 days and an angel, that's a prince of Persia overseeing this region of Asia, ancient Near East, is literally opposing his prayers from being heard. It's going to get real quiet real fast. I was, and the reason we need to know about this stuff is because one of the things that we read about in the Gospels is that those of us that follow Jesus proclaim the Gospel, we heal the sick, and we cast out demons. Some of you are like, demons, that's just on the movie. Well, I was at Lincoln Park. For, where are my brothers that live in Lincoln Park? I have a few friends that live in Lincoln Park, and I was visiting Big Ron. You guys know Big Ron. He's, yeah, Big Ron. He's, he's there, and um, I was hanging out with him for a couple hours, and as I was leave, leaving, this is two Tuesdays ago, um, as I was leaving, I saw this lady, and um, she looked like she was crazy and on drugs, and I, I've, I've done homeless ministry most of my adult life, so I'm very familiar with the different types of people out there, and as I'm walking by her, not even looking, she hollers at me and asks if I was a witch doctor. I said, no, I'm a pastor, and she says, well, I can see whatever spirit's on you. This is right here by the subway. So I go to create a conversation because now I'm thinking, gosh, there's got to be some type of spiritual thing going on. And I've seen this before. And as I begin to talk to her, she begins to snarl and hiss and create manifestations that you see on TV, um, which is totally normal in the demonic, with the demonic. So I'm just praying, and I don't know if she's possessed or oppressed. They're two different things. Um, But obviously she has experienced the occult. She's obviously aware that I had some type of spirit. She wouldn't be calling me out. Every time I said the name Jesus, she would flinch. Hmm. To the point where she started yelling. I'm not praying for her at all. I'm just trying to talk. And this guy who came with a pentagram, giant pentagram necklace, starts yelling at her. And a police officer comes. It's absolute chaos. And they they walk away as they're snarling, hissing, cussing at me on their way down uh, Long Beach, not Long Beach, uh, Pacific, going up Pacific. We need to know what we're up against. Jesus came to pick a fight and he won the fight on the cross. But there's a battle going on and if the church isn't engaging in the battle, then we're letting those that are spiritually oppressed leave in oppression. We need to fight the battle with Jesus. Now, we don't go out looking for it. I'm not going out with my demon buster's gloves on. (laughs) I'm aware 
of what's going on. I could tell you a story. I spoke at a conference in New One, and these are just fascinating. It's right before Halloween. Let me give you some creepy stories. They're not creepy, and that's the point. I was at, at New One in, in the UK, speaking to about 3,000 people. The conference was about 10,000. Um, and I spoke for five days straight every morning. In the last session in the night, all the leaders are leaving and there was probably a 95 pound 18 year old blonde haired girl manifesting being held down by six grown men and they couldn't hold her down it was straight out of a movie now normally I'm absolutely terrified and walk away right but there was no one no other pastor there and they're like hey pastor come here and I'm like oh gosh what am I supposed to do watching this girl cock her head back eyes rolling in the back I mean manifesting like on the movies um, which again is totally normal sometimes I mean sometimes it's not nearly as dramatic you would never guess um, so as as we as I approach this lady watching this whole thing her body flip around they're trying to hold her down praying and um, the, the spirit of God just rested on me and I stood up straight and I, I just felt this is not even a competition. And I've read books on this stuff and I remember a quote from someone so I just stole the quote as this girl looks me in the eyes and they were glazed back and says, cusses at me, calls me preacher and begins to curse out sins of my life. Okay? I look at her in the eyes and this again, this, I'm stealing it from someone else and I said, you will not embarrass the daughter of the king. In the name of Jesus, I command you to leave her. Flat as a board. No competition. Why is there no competition? Because everything, everything is under Jesus' feet. You have access to him, and that's the world we live in. Paul wants you to know the power you have access to. So I'm talking about demonic forces. What about poverty? How do the people of God pray against systemic poverty? Human trafficking. You want to know real evil? That's evil. Child slavery, that's evil. Family abuse, orphans, that's real evil. We need, as the people of God, to understand the power we have access to and what we're invited to. It's not just so we can get a job or that we can get over our anxiety and depression. It's that we can partner with God in the real battle going on. That's what Paul's inviting us into. Know God, know the hope of the future, which places the anxiety your, your, your future can literally be handed to God. You don't know how it's going to turn out. My wife and I are in this crazy season of transition. It's unbelievable how much faith we have to walk in because we're lacking it. And I'm just like, this is, I'm teaching this message last night before bed. We're stressing out. 10.30 at night. Babe, we have a hope. God knows what's up. He's always provided for us. He's always taken care of our needs. He's always done that. That's where we rest in our future. Our future is with Jesus. Our present is given access to power. So with the demonic stuff, they're real. There's no competition for those that are in Christ Jesus. We have to be equipped and learn how to pray into this stuff. Don't go looking for it. Don't call everything or every rock a demon, right? Just because you're sinning doesn't mean there's a demon in your life. I'm letting you know that. We have a sinful nature. That's a whole other conversation. Maybe I should have taken this in two parts. And thirdly, <laughs> thirdly, uh, we need to fight the battle that Jesus is fighting. He asked us to pick up the fight. We continue going forward. Forward. Uh, one more closing thought. I'm going a little longer than I expected. But um, Paul says uh, the battle is not flesh and blood, but of spiritual realities. That's going to come at, in, at the end of the book. He's right. But sometimes what begins as flesh and blood becomes a spiritual reality. What begins as a diagnosis of anxiety might begin to keep you from community 
might begin to keep you from your real identity, might begin to create fear about life in the future, that becomes a spiritual reality. Are you with me? So what might be manifesting as a flesh and blood, a fight between spouses might be flesh and blood, but there might be something deeper going on. Cool? Acts 1.8 says, uh, Jesus says to his followers, wait in Jerusalem. To, you will receive power from on high to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The power that we're talking about is the Holy Spirit manifested in your life. So, what type of God do you worship? How do you pray? You need change in your marriage? Are you praying? You need a job? Are you praying? You feel opposition? Are you praying? You're worried about the future? Are you praying? Your kids aren't behaving? Are you praying? Are you still addicted to the same stuff? Are you praying? You don't know if she's the one? Are you praying? Paul invites us into this prayer that we pray for the church and everyone else. That's what this is about. That we know God, we know the hope, and that we know the power we have access to. Shall we pray? Great. Jesus, we want to wait with you right now. We just invite you, Holy Spirit. Would you fill us, Lord? Can we do this? Can we stand? Let's stand. I want to do it this way. Some of you, this is new. Uh, what we do at the garden is we believe that the Holy Spirit is real and active. And not just something that we talk about, but something that we can experience for today. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes because we're distracted people. And if you're comfortable, hold your hands out in a posture of just wanting to receive. It's just a posture. There's nothing special about this posture. And I want you just to invite the Holy Spirit to fill you. Paul says in Ephesians to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. We give ourselves out throughout the week, every relationship, every moment we're just giving. God gives himself to us as a gift to receive. Just say, Lord, would you fill me with your spirit again? ask you to stay standing. We're going to worship a couple of, with a couple of songs, but I invite you to just receive right now. Receive the Holy Spirit so that you may know God better. We're going to sing songs. I want to invite you to sing if you know the words or just receive to expand your mind and heart to who God is. I'm going to come back in a few moments, but let's just worship and be led into this time. But this is a time for you to just receive what, for whatever God has for you.